0: Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And this one is a cooker. Dr. Margaret Peters came over, and uh, she's like a world expert on immigration, or uh, sort of at a larger altitude, migration patterns, why people move where they do, and then all the economic and political factors that affect Uh, these large migrations of people in their different places and different times. And obviously, immigration is like this word right now that's like loaded, it's like electric, it's uh, attracting all of this heat. And uh, I had met several of you who had talked about like this sense of you you needed more like perspective on immigration. So um, she agreed to come over. And so I'm gonna play this interview uh, with her. But before we do that, Fall tickets for the Introduction to Joy Tour just went up. It's the final leg of the tour, and uh, um, by the end of September, I'll be in Chicago, and then Champaign, Illinois, then Indianapolis, Nashville, Atlanta, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, Sacramento, Santa Cruz, and then the tour will end in December at the Lodge Room here in Los Angeles. But before that, of course, is the UK Introduction to Joy Tour, and uh, that's just a couple weeks away. And um, we added a second night in London. So Westside and Shepherds Bush at Bush Hall Theatre. Um, and that's like a like a beautiful, like, intimate little theatre. We're doing a second London show. And then there's a Bristol show before those two London shows. And then there's a Manchester. And then three nights in Edinburgh, Scotland at the Fringe Festival. Come on! And then... Uh, Oh yeah, but before that, which is just a couple weeks away, um, first night in Denmark, Copenhagen, sold out at Jazz House Montmarty, an evening with Rob Bell. So we added a second evening with Rob Bell. So uh, tickets just went up for that as well. So there's a few things going on. Tickets, uh, there's still a couple spots for the August 2-day, which is all about ideas and creative process and how you take something and give it shape and form. Those are the um, Something to Say workshops, and all that info, of course, is at my site. But now, um, you are about to get a crash course by a master teacher um, in immigration. And I, uh, well, you can see, I learned so much. And just the fact that I could record the conversation, record the interview, and then um, you could learn from her. Oh, Oh, seriously, so Good. So, here we go. Dr. Margaret Peters. Okay, Robcast friends. Uh, We're here in the back house with Dr. Margaret Peters. Although Maggie?
1: Maggie, yes. Are we at Maggie yet? Yes, I think so.
0: We're at Maggie yet. Maggie and Rob are in the back house. This is her first time in the back house. And um, I've been looking forward to this because, well, my son Trace, as you know from the Trace report, Trace has been on the Robcast a number of times. And we have so much fun. But uh, you're a professor at UCLA. And Trace had class with you. And he's like, she knows so much. And it's so challenging. And I was like, oh, interesting. So I went on the old Googler and uh, hunted you down and found out all sorts. Of, I was like, oh, my word. I have to have her on. So I literally have a notebook here of questions. Great. For you. <laughs> so um, immigration is your... when. when People say, "What do you do, or teach about, or you have a PhD in this?" Is do you say immigration?
1: Yeah, so I usually say um, really dorkily, international political economy, which means just means <laughs> like the study of the international economy and the politics around it. And I focus on migration. So when I started, when I was doing my PhD, I was just focused on immigration and people coming into relatively wealthy countries. Uh, but as I've moved along in my career I've gotten more interested uh, right now in how, what happens to the countries that people leave once they leave and what happens and how do people decide whether or not they're going to move and when they're going to move and where they're gonna go and all those sorts of questions
0: I th- right now I mean this word immigration right now I mean you've been studying this for years but right now it's such uh, it's in the air um, but I know for some especially so many people, Listening to this episode, immigration is like cages, parents being separated, borders, caravans, every nonsense tweet from the president. (laughs) Um, So what I'm really interested in is you giving like this wider, when you use the word immigration, there's this wider expanse that you're referring to.
1: Right. So when I think about immigration, I think about basically anybody who's moving to another country any country in the world um for you know and planning to be there for a little while so not just like tourists or somebody who's going on a short business trip but people who are planning to uproot their lives in some way and move on um to another country and so that could be somebody who's thinking oh i'm gonna go work somewhere for six months go make a lot of money about a bunch of money and go back home so I think about this a lot with people going to the Persian Gulf countries where they have huge numbers of migrant workers who have Like, no rights, no chance of ever becoming citizens. You know, people will go there for years and years and years and never be on a long-term visa. They'll always have to go home and and be a temporary worker. Um, To people who are coming to places like the United States. And thinking about the long history of immigration in the United States, going from, you know, before our founding, what did the colonies do? How did they think about migration through to today?
0: And your work from what I understand, the thing that you did in academic circles is you put immigration and migration patterns side by side with trade. Correct. And that was like the, like the breakthrough idea was to talk about the one you have to talk about trade. Right. And I know nothing about trade.
1: All right. (laughs) (laughs) So trade is the movement of goods and services across borders. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)
0: Thank
1: you. Um, No, so that, yeah, it's this idea. So in economics, um, which is where a lot of my research sort of starts out. It's this idea that having openness should have the same effects, whether it's moving goods or people. So you could either, the way I always think about it is you could either have a bunch of Chinese people come to the United States and work here like we did in the 19th century where they came to San Francisco, LA didn't really exist at that point, but San Francisco, yeah, right. um, they came to build the railroads or you can move your factory to China and ship the goods back. Either way, you're going to be able to take advantage of relatively cheaper labor. And so from the business point of view, it's really thinking about which of these is easier for them. Is it easier to try and bring people to the country where they are? Or is it impossible for them to move? Or is it easier to go and just move your factory or move your whatever overseas? And so once you start thinking about that way, you start to think about like, oh, the fact that Especially after World War II, we've made – purposely, policymakers have gone out and made trade easier. We've taken down tariffs from, you know, averages of, you know, 10% tariffs, 25% tariffs – In many cases, down almost to zero. So suddenly trade becomes a lot cheaper. So tariffs are just taxes on foreign goods. That's all they are. Um, Taxes that usually consumers pay. And those
0: policies were done. The intent was to do what?
1: So the intent was to bring the world together. And the, the idea was if you can make products where they can be made most efficiently, everybody wins, because as consumers, then we can buy goods more cheaply, and then we can specialize and sell the things that we're really good at making here in the United States.
0: So the idea was win-win across the board.
1: Right. The idea was win-win across the board, and also we had some other ideas, too, tied along with that. We wanted to make sure that Europe and Japan got rebuilt after World War II, because we were worried that if these countries stayed in economic collapse, that they would also become communists. So part of this was like this anti-they're like vulnerable
0: and susceptible right, yeah. to other ideologies, exactly. If nobody has a job and nobody has education, exactly. And
1: options. So, part of which was is sort
0: of Hitler's rise to power,
1: right? Exactly. So, Hitler did, okay. did rise, in fact, in part due to the economic collapse with the Great Depression.
0: Uh, so, after World War One. Germans are vulnerable. He rises. So after World War II, they're like, we don't want that. We again.
1: don't want that. That was specifically the idea. It's like, don't create another Hitler-type situation. And also, we already had sort of like the the bad guys getting set up over in the Soviet Union, and we didn't want them coming further, further west, um, further into Western Europe.
0: That what the the encroachment of communism really was like a giant, giant, giant thing. Right. Even in even in the America in the 50s, 60s, whatever. I mean, when I grew up in the 80s in America, but the terror of communism taking root really was huge.
1: Right. And if you think about it, it was there was a lot of support in many ways through the Great Depression for a lot of those ideas. There was a lot of support even here in the United States for nationalizing production um, and for implementing these sorts of national policies because... With the Great Depression, it seemed that capitalism so spectacularly failed. And so part of what goes on after World War II is, how do we rebuild capitalism in a way that um, gains support back for it?
0: so I have like brain fireworks. The Depression had all sorts of people asking questions about capitalism. Right. Like now.
1: Right, exactly, because it... It was the same sort of thing where you had, but even worse. So, like, at least we learned something from the Great Depression when it came to the Great Recession that made it so the Great Recession wasn't... It started out kind of as bad as the Great Depression, but we recovered much more quickly because policymakers jumped into action really quickly based on the lessons they had because learned of from, other, from the Great Depression and then other recessions.
0: I endlessly find it fascinating when there's a giant, like, like, capitalism isn't working like it's supposed to, there's nothing new under the sun, you know. I mean, just that sense we've been here before, right? In our relatively recent history,
1: right? We've uh, had this. Yes, exactly. So, like our grandparents maybe would have remembered that. Yeah, but. yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, so now we're back at. So they these policies post World War II were to make sure that Europe, Japan could rebuild, right? And sort of win-win across the board.
1: Exactly. And so, but at the same time, um, you are still. Dealing with a fair amount of um, xenophobia and concerns about, especially here in the United States, concerns about people coming from other countries. So we didn't open back up immigration after the Great Depression. We kept it relatively restricted in the U.S. for a while. Like a quota
0: of how many people can come into the country, or how does yeah, that? Yeah, so do it was
1: it was a quota system. I forget the exact numbers. It was based off of. It was something like. of what your population was in the 1890 census for Europeans. So that privileged people who were from Northern and Western Europe, because those are the people who had come in by 1890. And then countries in Asia and Africa were each given a quota of a hundred people each.
0: Wait, a hundred Africans were allowed to enter America
1: from each African country, country. Um, Starting in the fifties, prior to the fifties, we had the Asian exclusion zone and the African exclusion zone, which meant basically nobody was allowed in from those areas.
0: And there, so the, the policies were literally pick a country and decide how many of them will can come into our country or right.
1: not. Right. So the the prevailing thinking at the time was that um, it 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 culminates in like the eugenics movement, where the thinking at the time was like there were all these different races. And even among Europeans, there were different races of Europeans. And that some had better qualities than others. And so we only wanted people who were of the highest quality. And we can tell who's the highest quality by what country they come from, because that explains what race they are.
0: Okay, (laughs) okay, okay. Can I interrupt? Yes. You study this as a scholar, like looking at data and history... But you just said those sentences just like you just reported them. Right. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I did, purposely.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: Because I, because it resonates so well with what's going on today.
0: All you have to do is just report that clinically, and I'm like
1: jumping out of my skin. Yeah, exactly. So that's like when every time somebody's like you know, Trump or whoever else says this thing that's, you know, anti-immigrant. I'm like, oh, I can find somebody who said something almost exactly the same 100 years ago, 200 years ago. It's not very hard. My favorite quote like that is Benjamin Franklin in the was the 1760s, was complaining about all the Germans who were coming to Pennsylvania, and he was like, we can't have these swarthy Germans who don't understand democracy coming here. And like, when was the last time you thought of a German as being swarthy? <laughs>
0: like, What even is swarthy? What's that, like, uncivilized? Or, or
1: like, you typically brutish? think it's like brutish, but also more like dark-skinned. <laughs> and they're like, when was the last time anybody thought of a, G- a German yeah, in that exactly,
0: way? exactly. Exactly. Unbel- so... So for you, well, I have questions about them right now, but yeah. let's, let's stay back yeah. there in history. Okay, so keep going.
1: So, right. So um, prior to the Great Depression, you'd already seen the beginnings of um, greater res- restrictions against immigration in the U.S., but also in other countries um, that I argue in my book were, were tied to increasing globalization in that era. So in the late 19th century, early 20th century, they had globalization just like we do today. Like they were trading goods. They were amazed by these new communication technologies like the telegraph and the telephone and that you could pick up the phone and call somebody in London. Um, There was, you know, international finance going across borders. There were all these similar, you saw the beginnings of offshoring of production. And so you had all these sort of similar characteristics as that, have happened in the last 20 years, um, that it meant that businesses just didn't need as much labor here in the U.S. or in Canada or Australia. So you started to see restrictions against immigration. In the U.S., we really see that culminate in this quota act that I mentioned of 1924 that really restricts immigration down to some of the lowest levels that we've had ever in our history.
0: So, and this is the... the The breakthrough connection you make of trade and immigration is these policies about our borders are driven by business, economics, businesses, and whether or not they need low-cost workers to come in.
1: Right. So if you think about it, um, you know, most people would say that business explains a lot of what happens in American politics, but in any country, because... Businesses have a lot of money, so they can influence politics. But also, that you know, policymakers care about businesses being successful because that gets people jobs. And as you know, Bill Clinton famously said, "It's jobs. the economy, stupid." Right, right. Like, so every policymaker knows, like, we I have to have jobs for my people to stay in power. Even an authoritarian dictator knows, like, if his people does not does not have jobs, they're likely to revolt against him.
0: Um, By the way, can I ask a question yeah. about? Amazon looking for a city to open their headquarters in this past year and the Long Island location and how so many people were saying, I know it's jobs, 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 and everybody loves that and the lawmakers love that. But there's actually a whole bunch of other things that aren't that good because of how magical that word is politically.
1: Right. So jobs, bringing jobs. Giving tax incentives for jobs is always, like, uh, a big thing. Like, you can think about even uh, a couple years before that in Wisconsin, there was this big thing over Foxconn, which does a lot of the production for Apple, putting a plant in Wisconsin. And they made all these claims about how many jobs they're going to bring. And so they got these big tax benefits. Now they're only bringing, like, 1,000 jobs or something like that. But jobs are always a magical word for politicians. Any sort of credit claiming they can do about jobs is fantastic for them. Yeah. Um, So, right. So if businesses want something, they often get it. That doesn't mean that they don't always get it, but frequently they get it unless there's really strong opposition. And so what I argue is that um, in the immigration space, typically the anti-immigration side is not that well-organized because it's it's some periods where you've had stronger organized labor and they've been against immigration. You've seen more organized anti-immigrant stance, but typically they're not super well-organized. So what that means is as long as businesses are together and want enough immigration, immigration will open. But if they don't care about it, then that gives this sort of anti-immigration side more leverage over the issue.
0: And where are we... Why is it so right now? Um, It seems like it's just right front and center now. Are there recent turns or forces that are why we're here?
1: So I think a large part of it is that uh, in the last 20 years, um, not quite, since China joined the WTO um, and we've had other... um, much more... World Trade Organization. Yeah, the World Trade Organization, the WTO. um, You've seen a huge loss um, in manufacturing and then a huge rise in automation in all sorts of industries. So you just have seen a huge decline in the need for lower skilled labor to come into the United States. And so what I show is that this has freed Republicans who used to have to cater to business on immigration and say like they were sort of boxed in they couldn't go too far to the right on immigration because they needed business support but if the businesses don't care so much any longer they're free then to cater to people who don't want immigration
0: so literally a like a technological invention of a factory something that whatever does whatever on a factory floor some
1: sort of robot right
0: a robot then freeze a particular narrow exclusive xenophobia ideology sort of domino effect
1: right so it just allowed it to gain more space for policymakers to move that direction and then they found that it was a it was a winning issue for them in some districts
0: this let's not let people come in right so what we're seeing now with this sort of nationalist is a reflection of earlier robots at some level.
1: Right, robots and also, you know, the ability of, you know, China to produce so many things so cheaply and leading to the decline of manufacturing. So both, I think that both, the decline of manufacturing let politicians go from having to support immigration, but it also, not my research, but lots of research I've seen suggests it also led to the people who, Um, either lost their jobs or saw a lot of their friends seeing jobs, feeling much more insecure in their positions and just feeling like America's going in the wrong direction. So I think that there were a lot of people who were sort of ripe for somebody who's willing to say, oh, it's not going to take any hard work. We'll just make America great again. And this is how Mm. we'll do it. So it just happened to be that You know, come along with that, Donald Trump has a lot of pretty uh, nasty sentiments that goes along with that, which you wouldn't necessarily have seen. You know, you could have imagined potentially, you know, um, had things worked out differently, uh, more like a leftist, like a Bernie-style populist Mm -hmm. coming to power if, you know— Bernie had been slightly more powerful. You could have imagined a world. Oh,
0: I got it. So those forces could have swung it one way, but they happened to swing it another way. Did you see the work that you were doing? Did you see this?
1: No. Oh, really, really? I don't think any political scientist thought this. I mean, you sort of saw... um,
0: we you said, saw the loss of manufacturing jobs because now there's robots, right. or if I do need labor, I'm going to go make it in China. Right. So that so, means a whole world of people who would have gone to work in a factory in Ohio aren't going to have a job.
1: Right. So I really saw that as like seeing that, oh, we're going to continue, the the Republican Party was going to continue to move further right on immigration. But I sort of, I th- I assume... Because they were free to. They were free to. Okay, got it. So, so that's the, I sort of assumed that... Um, You know, had comprehensive immigration reform been a little bit more conservative even in either under George W. Bush or under Obama. Remember, we tried comprehensive immigration reform in 2006-2007 under Bush, and then Obama tried it again in 2013-2014. And how would you
0: summarize that? That would be...
1: So that was this idea. It was going to be sort of like this grand bargain. So Democrats... Wanted some sort of path to citizenship or at yes. least legalization for the undocumented, and Republicans wanted um, more skills based immigration. Oh, so wanted to wanted to move us to like what Canada has, where they have a point system where you have to have a certain number of points, and most of those points are based off your education.
0: Basically, how are you going to benefit us if you right. come here? So Democrats were like, let's look at everybody who's already in the country. And let's just figure out how to get them legit or right, how, whatever yes. words you're going to say. And Republicans are like, no, 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 you have to have some points.
1: Right. Well, the Republicans were were maybe okay with the undocumented. some of the Republicans. So Even like, my
0: summaries <laughs> are too summarized.
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, sorry. I'm an academic. We always have to qualify That's everything. what I
0: love about it. I love all um, the other qualifications.
1: Uh, so like John McCain and I think Lindsey Graham was involved in a couple other politicians were willing to go along with a path to citizenship if going forward the immigrants who would be allowed in would be much more highly skilled mm-hmm. um, and but for the farther members of the the farther right members of the Republican Party, that was still you know too far from them. Um, they did not want to do anything to provide a path to citizenship for most of the undocumented and so the legislation failed. Um, it's possible, like, you know, perhaps if Obama had made comprehensive immigration reform his thing instead of healthcare his thing, mm-hmm. in that first two years where he had the House and Senate, we could have gotten comprehensive immigration reform. Um, but, you know, his priority uh, was health care. Uh,
0: and so that's why we're in sort of a, f- not a fog, but this, this keeps coming up Un- undocumented
1: right it well, keeps
0: coming up and doesn't get some sort of clear resolve or yeah. plan or strategy or whatever you say yeah
1: because part of it is like we have a lot of undocumented people here and so and there are a lot of people who um feel as if those folks have some sort of jumped a line or like broken laws or gotten Mm -hmm. here unfairly um or just don't like them and want them to go back although at this point i think like you know a large number of them have been here for more than like 10 years um but then of course you know we are talking about people and people make their own decisions about their lives and so that means that you know new people are facing threats um Most notably here, people coming from the Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, which they're facing, you know, huge threats of gang violence, um, or they're facing threats of, you know, complete poverty and starvation, um, and so are moving, and so they want to, they want to find somewhere where they can be safe, um, So this is not very different from many of our ancestors who were either looking for good or economic opportunity or like some of my ancestors were fleeing um, famine in Ireland or um, people I know who are fleeing, um, ancestors who were fleeing programs in Eastern Europe. So you have had lots of people fleeing all these sorts of reasons. So people are still going to flee. So we're always going to have this issue that even if we can figure out, like, what is the exact number of immigrants we should have every year to fill all the jobs that are necessary, and had like the best enforcement, there's still going to be people who are fleeing circumstances that um, we as the U.S. just cannot control.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a human element, right? That will always so so some sort of nice, neat policy will always get blasted to pieces at some level.
1: Yeah. There will always be things that you're going to have to deal with.
0: Oh, my. Okay. Um, Tell me, you are sitting at home watching the Democratic primary debates. Right. And they get to the, now we're going to move on to immigration. Um, How, from all of your research and years studying this, how do you watch the debates? Uh, Are you sitting there going, that's a good point? Are you like, oh, no, they're all missing it? (laughs)
1: <laughs> a little <of> both. Oh, <laughs> um, really? So I think there's a lot of um, interesting stuff and good ideas. I think what all the.
0: Oh, so when they're proposing solutions, you knowing that, like a much broader view of the landscape are like, no, nah, that's, that's actually a pretty good solution.
1: Yeah. So, like, um, you know, some of the stuff on this idea that um, maybe we shouldn't be creating a, like, criminal penalty, maybe like we still versus, have a civil penalty, yeah. w- which would mean, like, you wouldn't necessarily go to jail. You would own money. Yeah. And we still could enforce the laws. I'm like, you know, that maybe is a good idea. Um, and then the ideas of, like, people were talking about, at the last one, about providing health care for undocumented, or at least allowing them to buy in to um, the healthcare system. Like, you know what? That is probably a great idea because... You know, it's not like people, these people come here and they don't get sick. It's that they come here and maybe they get sick or they get injured on in the job or whatever. And then they go to the emergency room and then they can't pay their bills. And so then the rest of us end up paying it. And we all know that going to the emergency room is way more expensive uh, yeah. than going to like the regular doctor is. Yeah, so, yeah. so that was the whole thing with Obamacare in the first place. So there's some of those ideas that are pretty good. Um, there haven't been a huge amount of very detailed plans that have really focused on much beyond dealing with um, the situation with all the migrants coming from the Northern Triangle c- countries. So, you know, a lot of those, I think, are good ideas. Like, we know there's a huge backlog. We should get a bunch more judges down there to help figure out these cases. Yeah. Um, is th-
0: Northern Triangle, sorry, is Northern Triangle a new phenomenon?
1: Um, it's somewhat... Yes and no. So um, there's been a lot of violence from the Northern Triangle um, going on for a while. It sort of ebbs and flows depending on whether or not the gangs have truces both among themselves and with them and the police. And so when they have a truce, there's less violence. But there's still there's still always these issues, especially around um, gender based violence there in that, you know, these gang member guys will be like, you're my girlfriend and have horrible, you know, sexual and gender-based violence. Um, That hasn't really stopped there. Um, But what you have seen is, uh, I think, a recent uptick in violence from those countries um, that is causing people to flee. And so you saw this back in 2014. So in the summer 2014 was when we saw, under Obama, we saw a huge number of young adults, or Not even adults, older children. Um, So kids who were, you know, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 um, coming across by themselves, um, fleeing through Mexico. Because they're the ones who were either being recruited to be gang members or being recruited Mm -hmm. to be Mm -hmm. gang members' girlfriends. Um, So we saw a huge uptick. Um, We had 68,000 unaccompanied People, maybe they were all unaccompanied. Maybe that's the number for unaccompanied minors. But a huge number, twice the amount Whoa. from the last year, come over in 2014. And then things seemed like they were getting better on the ground mm-hmm. in those areas. But of late, things have gotten worse again.
0: And why? And that's golden, that's triangle or that's... That's the,
1: the triangle, yeah. Okay.
0: And so the the sort of politicizing of it by the White House it's taking this triangle issue that's causing boy and it's essentially using that to say, hey, we can't let them... It seems like it's exploiting that situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say so. Um, it also, because of the way the Trump administration has handled the crisis, they've actually created more of the crisis um, by wanting to detain all these people. So there was this... Um, like family, I forget exactly what it's called, but it was like the Family Release um, Monitoring Program that was a pilot program that actually works really well where you release, a a lot of these folks have family or friends here in the United States. So you release the migrants into the custody of the family and friends who you make responsible for them showing up at hearings. And they did, they showed up for their hearings pretty often. Um, with a very, very few skipped their hearings um, and actually came to court. But it meant that you weren't detaining people. And so the real crisis has been this detention. So yeah, we have a lot higher... They
0: eradicated that program?
1: They, It's still technically on the books, but they're not using it right now. So it was a pilot program, and a lot of Congress members said, hey, look, this is working great. We should expand it. Um, and a lot of the presidential campaign uh, candidates are saying we should expand this program. Um And they're not using the program.
0: Oh, my word. Okay, I know it's data and I know it's academia. (laughs) Do you not just get enraged sometimes?
1: Yes, I do. Uh, I think Monday I was at the gym when it flashed on CNN about the whole, you can't apply if you've traveled through any other country. And I was the weirdo who was like yelling at the TV TV. As I'm like on the spin bike, (laughs) being like, Uh, you can't do that. That's illegal. That violates the INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act. And I think people were like, who is this crazy person? Yes. I I have uh, to, you know.
0: Because uh, because it plays to the base. Yeah. It's 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 like we're tough. We're taking a stand. We're not letting them in. Okay. Got it.
1: Yeah. So it's playing to the base um about that but also it's just not effective and then it's you know forcing folks to stay in Mexico which and a lot of the areas of Mexico where they're staying are not particularly safe now they say that like all of Mexico is not safe I go to you know Puerto Vallarta and you know Cabo and Cancun yeah, or yeah. Mexico City and you're fine but you, we know that there are areas of Mexico that are not safe and so what it has led to is then people Um, either being exploited by the gangs that are in those areas or hiring smugglers. And, oh, yeah, the smugglers, if they're not already members of the cartels, pay a tax to the cartels. And so this is just funneling a huge amount of money to cartels. So, you know, if you're thinking about it from many standpoints, you know, it's bad for the migrants. And then it's bad for Mexico. And it's bad for us because it's empowering drug cartels who are making Mexico less stable. And like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you know, we really don't want to make Mexico <laughs> less stable. Um,
0: so literally the rhetoric and the policy and the rejection of actual working solutions that plays to the base and said, look, we're tough, we're not letting them in, actually destabilizes further our neighbor to the South. Right. And makes it even worse. So everybody's intuitive sense that this is awful, it actually is tr- yes, true.
1: Yes, it is true.
0: Oh my word. Uh, Okay, so um, we had just before we started recording, you had talked about how you go and do surveys in different places in the world in order to get firsthand accounts, essentially. Right. So to ask of movement and how people feel about that movement.
1: Right. So to ask the people themselves, you know, who are in these situations, like, what was the breaking point basically and how did you make decisions about where you want to go and what do you think about when you're making these choices? And um, because we've been talking to a bunch of people who've stayed in places like Syria and we're talking to people who are staying in Venezuela to also get a sense of like, why would you stay like, yeah, right. Cause especially we could all think about Syria. We've all heard that, you know, about the horrific violence that's gone on there. Um, the bombings, the human rights, violations torture chemical weapons use and you're like dear god the fact that anybody has stayed is sort of amazing at right. times right 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 um,
0: so, so was it three summers ago
1: yeah so three summers ago we ran this survey of syrian and iraqis in syria and iraq but also in turkey and jordan so people who had stayed within those countries but then the people have also left
0: and the survey paper pen ipad like how does the survey how does it work ipad so, yeah
1: so we program a survey back here in California or with my co-authors in New Haven and Princeton. Um, they have much fancier addresses than I do. And in, so, in some ways, if you know which which universities they belong to.
0: You are in Southern California, yeah, though. Yeah, so, so exactly. there we go.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, so we program a survey here. And then we have... And
0: I assume there's endless discussion about how to get the most out of the fewest questions. Right,
1: yeah. Because you... Although I feel bad, like we... Uh, our survey for these Syrians and folks, like our survey was like half an hour long but and they and they did them and I was oh, at sure. least um, that somebody would hang out that long um, so then you hire people in those countries to go around, enumerators to go around and ask people these questions and they had them on tablets or on phones, frequently on phones because they wanted to be able to like put the phone away and pretend they were doing something else really quickly depending on the security situation. Oh, sure, sure. So, like Even
0: the taking of the survey is risky.
1: Right. So especially, um, you know, in Turkey at the time, the Turkish government was cracking down on uh, foreigners interacting with migrants. So our team would, like, move around a lot and b- pretend that they were, like, hanging out and showing videos on their phone, <laughs> I guess, oh. to the people as they were doing yeah, the survey right. just so they wouldn't get in trouble.
0: Um, oh my word! Just to get the information is yeah. like uh, risky. Does what most surprise you uh, about why people choose to leave their home?
1: Um, I think less surprised us about why people chose to left to leave originally, um, in that a lot of them were fleeing um, violence. Um, what actually surprised me the most was that. Um, while many of them had thought about leaving, when they actually made the decision, they had typically less than a day or less than a week to gather all their things and get out. Uh. And so you think about it, but I mean, so it just sort of shows, and with the people who stayed in Syria, shows the like amount of attachment people have to their place, to their community, and how much they didn't actually want to leave. And so for these folks, it was literally like you know, we heard ISIS is in the next town over. We have to flee now. Or the bombing has just gotten too intense. We don't have food. We don't have water. We have to go. And so it was really this sense of, like, Mm. they really didn't want to leave, and they were really, like, holding on. And because most of the people we interviewed from Syria were coming from the Western-allied sort of free Syrian army zone uh, these people were people who really want to stay on and fight fight for democracy there. And so we're willing to stay for a long time. They were willing to endure. A lot.
0: Excruciating circumstances. Um, tell me about Syria and Assad. And uh, I know a lot of your work touches on dictators. Right. And oppressive regimes. <laughs> and how people leaving and people staying affect keeping like a strong man in power.
1: Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Assad took over from his father. Um, and
0: his brother was the one that everybody loved or thought would lead. But then yeah. his brother dies unexpectedly. Right. And then he's, like, not really the magnet. He's not the guy. Not the charisma guy. But he gets it anyway.
1: Right. And he figures out how to hold on to power.
0: I just told you everything I know about spirit. Um,
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
0: And so he holds and then turns out to be ruthless and able to hold on for a long time.
1: Right. And probably and unfortunately for those of us who, you know, supported the demo- pro-democracy side is probably going to stay on, you mm-hmm. know, uh, maybe these areas um, around Aleppo and um, Idlib province, maybe they'll hold on and have some sort of semi-autonomy kind of like uh if you remember during the 90s, how the Kurds in northern Iraq had autonomy from Saddam sort of Hussein place, yeah. and, and basically set up their own thing. Um, that's probably best case scenario for these folks. Um, but he has used brutal oppression to... That has been the, the his way of hanging on to power throughout his uh, reign, um, and it's only gotten worse. Um, so what you have then is you have a whole lot of people who oppose the regime who are now living in Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, places in Europe, some in Iraq, um, who are living all in the region and then also more in Europe who are never going to go back probably at this really? point. You know, especially if he stays in power. These are folks who are just worried now that if they go back, just the fact that they, will, they had left would have signaled yes. that they didn't like the regime and um there have been reports of people going back and under assurances that like nothing would happen to them and then of course being disappeared into jails and never coming back out
0: how does it affect if if you're Assad and you are running Syria you're you're leaking population right so the population is just getting smaller and smaller and smaller what is that doing um what is the thinking i mean it's sort of like what's a dictator's thinking when I'm shrinking my country.
1: Yeah. So it depends a little bit about what's going on with the dictator. So on the one hand, this is really good for him because the people who don't like him have left. Yes. And so if he can regain, you know, control, most of the people who have stayed are the ones who are unlikely to fight against him or who liked his regime to begin with. Cause it's not like, you know, he was such, he still had supporters because he was giving economic benefits to jobs, some people, jobs, yeah, perks, etc. etc. et cetera. Yeah. Um, so in some sense, that's good. On the other hand, when you lose like something close to your, like half your population. Is or, it really? Is it, it's a huge, it's a huge amount. It's at least half the population is displaced, but not all of them are outside the country, but it's like at least a good quarter of the population is gone. Wow. Um. And so then you have to think about, like, what does that mean for the economy after you rebuild? And so it depends a little bit on, like, how many jobs did you have beforehand? Were those people really employed? Were they working in subsistence agriculture? Um, were there lots of people who were unemployed or sort of marginally employed? And so this is actually like, okay, you sort of solved your unemployment problem because all these people have left. Yeah. Or is it a situation where you have so many people gone that you've really destroyed the economic capacity right, right, of the right. state. So it's sort of like where I'm not quite sure at the moment where we are in that tipping point. I would say like the war has done a lot more to destroy the economic yeah. capacity of yeah, that yeah. state than anything else. But having losing a lot of people, and losing a lot of talented educated people is definitely not good for the economy for right, whenever, right, right. whenever they just, whenever the war is, you know, boils down to a simmer or comes down to a simmer instead yeah. of being boiling over. Um, and then it can depend a little bit under which conditions people leave. So regular old economic migrants are pretty good for dictators because, you know, they usually maintain links back home. They send back money um, to their family yeah. who stayed home. Yeah. They might even do cro- more like cross border trade, or investment back home. But in this case where you have a lot of people who left and hate the dictator who's remaining, you know, they might still be sending money back home because they might still have relatives who need help back home, but they're not going to be like, "Let's do some joint trade venture" or, or I'm not they're not going to yeah. invest. They in don't area. want to benefit no. at all. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, you, you see that to some extent with like the Iranian diaspora who lives here in LA, which is pretty anti anti the regime that's in iran right now and so you know i do know people who are like oh i send money back to my family members back home but like you know they barely go back there they're not going to do business with the regime back there because they oppose the regime yeah yeah, yeah. Um, whereas if you think about you know mexican migrants who came to the united states for a long time and built businesses here will build you know invest back in mexico will do trade with mexican country companies they don't you know, they left because they were looking for a better life, not because they hated Mexico for the most part. Right, right. I'm right. sure there's some people who were like, No, I hated Mexico and so I left and I yeah, never. But generally
0: to it's a better life. Yeah. Um, how if I would have met you when you were twenty, were you interested in this?
1: No. Actually, I was not really interested in this per se. I so when I was twenty, that was in two thousand, um, I don't think... I don't remember what I wanted to do when I was 20. But, you know, of course, like, you know, all the people of our age, when September 11th happened, that really changed in many ways what I thought I wanted to do in that, you know, we went into Afghanistan. I'd always sort of been interested in economic development. We went into Afghanistan, and then we went into Iraq. And so I was really interested in how you might rebuild these countries after you have big conflicts or civil wars. Yeah. and so I went to grad school thinking that I would do post-Civil War, not just post-U.S. Civil War, but Civil Wars in general, Reconstruction. Um, but before I went to graduate school, I had worked uh, for a consulting firm and got to work overseas in Doha, Qatar, which is one of those little small tiny states off of Saudi Arabia that's going to host the World Cup in a couple of years. Yes. Um, and I got there, and ninety percent eighty to 90% of the population there. Are foreigners who have no citizenship rights, and so I was working there.
0: Wait, at, wait, Q- Qatar, yeah. also pronounced Qatar, right? for,
1: <laughs> for us Qatar, Qatar
0: is ninety um, percent of the people.
1: Yeah, eighty to ninety percent of the people who in live in the country, there, country in the country
0: aren't, aren't citizens. citizens. So there's like a ten percent little group.
1: Yeah, there's this tiny little group of native Whoa. Qataris who barely interact with the immigrants. um And then everybody who works at all the stores, everybody who works – most of the people who worked – I worked for a consulting firm and we were working for the uh, judiciary branch helping them modernize their judiciary, which they were literally using pens and paper and pencils and everything. And then they were like, oh, why did we lose this evidence? I was like, because you never – Put it, locked it in, like you know, Just it was like so backwards, so bad, so like behind where we were. We were putting in this computer system, and so the chief justice who we were working with on this pro- project was an Egyptian who they had brought in to like. He there were there were Qatari judges too, and chief and and justices, but the chief justice for the modernization was an Egyptian. Um, it was it was wild, and yeah, um. And so I had been thinking, like, oh, when I was was there, I was like, this is wild and weird. And, like, how did they get like this? And then it started me, me thinking, like, what must have been, like, the U.S. been like, you know, a hundred years earlier when we had just these cities that were just filled with immigrants from all over the place? that yeah. must have been somewhat like this. Um. And so when I got to graduate school, I was still like, I'm going to study Civil Wars. And then everybody was doing that because it was 2005. And that's what everybody studied back then. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Everybody's like already on this. I'll go figure something out. And so that's when I got interested in these like questions around immigration.
0: So academia for you um, and your graduate school work was where? At Stanford. And where did you teach before UCLA?
1: Uh, At Yale.
0: So Stanford, Yale, now UCLA. Undergirding your academia is curiosity.
1: Yeah, always.
0: It's very personal. So it's like mounds of data, and it's publish or perish. It's but underneath it all, it's your own, like pursuing a line of inquiry.
1: Right, because you know, I started what became my book. Started as my second year paper in two thousand and seven. The book was published in twenty seventeen. So you have to be ten years. Ten years. So you have to be really into working on this, I mean, granted, I worked on other things in between. I had a kid. You know, it takes a (laughs) while. It wasn't like I was working. The last year before it came out, I wasn't really working on it any longer. That's just how long it takes the publisher. As you know, as somebody who's written books, it takes a while between when you hand over the manuscript to when it actually comes out. Yeah, yeah, there's a thing. Um, So... You know, I was probably only, you know, only doing, you know, seven real years of work on this <laughs> issue. <laughs> but, you know, so you have to be, as an academic, you have to be passionate about what you're doing, interested in it, otherwise you're never going to make it because it takes so long. Uh,
0: and you're working with, like, the data or these surveys, just the sheer numbers. Right. Um, and what's happening in the world and flow patterns and who's going here and who's going there. and
1: Right. So you have to, like, data and statistics. So you math. pour
0: you pour <laughs> over charts and yeah. statistics and numbers and you know where to find them. Do you ever do you ever have a number you're looking for that you can't find?
1: Oh yeah. Especially in migration. Um, a lot of countries just haven't kept good statistics on it over oh, the history. So like when we were talking about trade earlier, what is really interesting about trade is because trade and tariffs and trade were such a big part of most countries Um, tax base, because it was really easy for countries to show up at the port and charge taxes on what was coming in. That was easy to do. So back in the olden days... Nobody
0: in that country has a problem with that. Right. Okay.
1: So back in the olden days, you can think about it, before we had income taxes, the federal government's one of their major sources of revenue was the tariff. Um, Because again, it was easy. Instead of like going to every house and trying to figure out what every house owes, you just send your guys to the dock or have your guys Mm -hmm, sit at the dock mm -hmm, and charge mm -hmm. taxes on stuff. Um, And so because of that, that's meant that countries have kept really good records of what's going in and out of their country in terms of goods going back into the 1800s. But not people. But not people. Um, So the U.S. were actually, as researchers, were kind of lucky in that in 1819, Congress wanted a good record of how many people were coming in the U.S. every year. And so we started collecting statistics in 1820 of how many people were coming to the U.S. every year. And then they started asking questions not too long after that, I think in like the 1850s, 40s or 50s, of like where the people were coming from. Uh And because most people... Uh, during that time period who were coming in were coming in at the major ports of entry. So New York, Baltimore, mm-hmm. Boston, mm-hmm. New Orleans, um, you know, other places in the South uh, meant that it was pretty easy to count them as they came off the boat. Yeah. Um, and so through that era, we have much better statistics on Europeans coming in. And then once we have people coming to the West Coast, people from Asia coming in through the West Coast, and we have some data, uh, but not a huge amount coming of people coming across the southern border because uh, we just didn't care. <laughs> we,
0: oh, we really, didn't really, truly. We didn't,
1: have, we didn't have really any laws against one way or the other about Mexicans coming into the United States. And we just didn't really care. And so there weren't that many of them coming across. So, just like similarly, we didn't have that much good data on people coming across from Canada, and there were still actually a fair amount of people who went to Canada, decided Canada was not for them, and moved to the south to the United States.
0: <laughs> so, at some level, now some of the pandemonium, now some of the like, wow, chaos, yeah, is because earlier we didn't care,
1: right? <laughs> so, <That's> we, <laughs> you know, we didn't even have really a border patrol until the 19 teens. Congress really? didn't authorize. Uh, started authorizing money during uh, sort of like the World War One era for mounted patrols occasionally on the border. And then it wasn't until 1914. I was do- working on something the other day, so I looked this up. It wasn't until 1914 that Congress first appropriated money for a border, a border patrol.
0: A relatively new idea. Yeah. Oh, see, that's really interesting. That's really, really interesting. Now, um, this Trump and China and tariff war that's in the New York Times every other day. Right. Where's that headed? What is that in its most elemental... Um, what, what What is going on there, and where is it headed?
1: Um, so what is going on there? Well, part of what's going on there is are some legitimate complaints on our part with the Chinese government about um, the fact that they don't allow our... Com- our com- companies to have as much access to their markets so they you know don't let our companies do stuff as freely import as many of our goods as we would like Um, and they often force our companies who are working in that country to um, turn over some amount of intellectual property so you know if you're working on a business you have to have a joint venture with a, a Chinese person and you have to teach them how you're doing what you're doing which on the one hand, from the developing countryside, it has a sort of sense of like, you can maybe legitimize it as saying, like, oh, we want to make sure our people aren't just always the poor workers, but we're moving up. We're, we're rising
0: up. We're being empowered. empowered. Yeah, we're yeah. learning okay.
1: the management style. We're learning how you develop these products. But also, on the more nefarious side, could be like, we're stealing your intellectual property. And so a lot of American companies have griped about this. Um and so we've been working in past administrations on trying to get a fix for this. Um, and Trump has decided the way to do this is with tariffs and also that maybe this will bring some amount of manufacturing back here to the United States um, and provide more jobs. And what it seems to be doing neither of those things right now. Oh, really? Okay. Um, The Chinese government has not moved particularly much on the key issues we would like them to move on. Um, And it hasn't brought that much manufacturing back. And anyway, what manufacturing it does bring back might not employ as many people as it once did. Because even if we do bring like steel, like we have these tariffs on steel right now from all over the world. Um, Even if we do bring steel production back, we are producing more steel in this country than we did uh, in the late '60s, but with like something like th- the tenth of the workforce, because once again, robots efficiency. took all the jobs. Right, efficiency. You know, robots, this- <laughs> all of that sort of stuff means that you know we can bring jobs back, but that doesn't mean we're n- or we can bring manufacturing back and we bring production back, but it doesn't mean that we're going to hire that many more people. It just means that firms are probably going to invest in technology instead.
0: See that? Oh, it's so interesting. That impulse of like let's just bring it back. But it's like actually, almost like spiritually or energetically, this isn't the place it wants. Right. The world isn't what it was. So you can try to bring it back, but you're bringing it back to something that isn't what it was. And the thing that you think you're recapturing,
1: you this aren't. Isn't there. Yeah. So in many ways Oh, it's like, that's so interesting. Um, you know, a hundred years ago or so, people were writing back about like bringing back idyllic agriculture and this horrible industry that was dirty and messy and sure. people are moving to, that now we look back and be like, oh, we want to get back to those halcyon days of industry. <laughs> oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> and so th- I think, you know, part of this is always this, you know, nostalgia for a past that didn't actually exist um, in many ways, but how oh, we think about so existing, interesting. Um,
0: you had these huge factories and people were it's belching smoke into the sky and horrible was it up to Sinclair in the jungle or are they some right. of these writings that we're exposing and so people like, Oh, if we could just have horses and plows right. and now you have people going, If we could just have factories Right.
1: And then we think about like, oh wait, didn't that river the Cuyahoga River catch fire <laughs> because of the factories? Because of these factories. Yeah. But you know, on the on the other hand, what happened between, you know, the nineteen fifties in sixties with manufacturing today was like at, in the forties fifties and even you know twenties, early part of the century, through probably the seventies meant that like you could get a factory job, um, not having had to have gone to a huge amount of schooling. Maybe only you know in those earlier days only had to finish like a couple years of schooling, but you know in the fifties and sixties only having to finish high school, and you could work your way up in these factories, mm-hmm. and do quite well for yourself and have a nice middle-class life. Mm -hmm. And what has happened between globalization and automation and just the change in the way we do production is we're often missing those middle ladder jobs. And so you can be young and bright and not finish, finish high school. And even though you're young and energetic and bright, there's nowhere at a certain point for you to go without those higher level skills. And, at the same time that this was going on, we saw a huge decrease in funding for our public universities. So, you know, people decry. This is one thing that sort of gets me in sense is, like, this whole debate over, you know, should we refor- uh, um, forgive student loan debt is the fact that, like, you know, we could also just invest at the same levels as we used to in our public uh, universities so you know every year we lament that the state of California doesn't fund the UCs the way they did last year or I worked for a little bit at the University of Wisconsin talk about a school that's had their budget slash. like they've lost a huge amount of state funding um, the University of Michigan where I attended college um Basically, is a more or less private institution at this point. They get very little funding from the state. And so that meant that, like, where do we go every time the state cuts our budget? Is like, we got to find the money from somewhere. Oh, it usually ends up with the students. Got and it. so you have these these different th- these different two things going on where you needed more and more people to get education to move ahead. But we made education more costly and more difficult to, for a lot of students to get.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Oh, my word. Okay, a couple more questions to wrap yeah. this up. We've been all over the place here. Um, do you do people ever say to you, like, the things happening at the border, people dying, families being separated, what can I do? I mean, I would assume with your research and how much you know about all this, are people asking you, like, how do I get involved, how do I help? There's sort of like humanitarian right. compassion thing that happens within us.
1: Yeah, so I, there are all sorts of ways to help. There's some little really great um, organizations like Raíces. How do you spell that? R A C I A S E, I think. All R- right. Uh, okay. They're pretty easy to find on Google. Um, there's Kind Kids in Need of Defense, which provides lawyers for um, kids who are traveling, who are unaccompanied minors, mm-hmm. um, so that they can have legal representation. Um, if you are a lawyer, I have a friend who does pro bono work and volunteering to help. Kids, Or if you speak Spanish or um, what we really need are people who speak these indigenous languages that almost nobody speaks. But if you are one of those people, you can provide um, translation services from your house where, like, the lawyer calls you and you basically are over the phone interpreting for them. Um,
0: Oh, interesting.
1: There are ways you can help... um, uh, be a child advocate. So even if you're not a lawyer, you can be an advocate who can work with um, the kids who are unaccompanied um, or be an advocate for families. So here in um, Los Angeles, there are um, also CHIRLA, um, C-H-I-R-L-A, uh, which I forget what it stands for, but it's a immigration um, uh, like legal defense organization that always needs help, always needs money. Um, so you can give money to help um, people pay their bonds, um, to get out of these, um, to get out of detention. Um, there's a great organization if you're interested in helping refugees. There's a great organization here in LA called Mary's List, which is actually started by a woman who I know. Um, Uh, from a mom's group Um, she's a fellow mom um, (laughs) and she started a group that helps integrate and provide goods for new refugee families that have been resettled here Um, and so she always needs money and donations of stuff they always have Amazon wish lists for these folks who've just moved you know just been resettled from you know Afghanistan or Iraq so some of the families have been resettled are ones who worked as military translators for our, our soldiers in Afghanistan, Iraq, who had to flee because they're now being threatened. Um, some of the folks are you know, refugees from you know, the Democratic Republic of Congo or other places all over the world who need help and have just been resettled here. Um, there's other organizations like the International Rescue Committee that you can give money to um, and volunteer for that uh, work with uh, refugees all over the world. And then, of course, you can always, you know, pick up the phone, call your member of Congress and yell at them for a while. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Say this is, you know, unacceptable. You can give money to candidates who say that this is unacceptable. Um, You know, especially if you have a Republican member of Congress, um, they are the ones who are most afraid of um, going against um, what Donald Trump is doing because they're most afraid of his base coming out against him. And if they know that they have enough constituents who say, look, he doesn't represent me on this issue, he might represent me on other issues, but not on this one, um, you know, that can be really powerful to them. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, politicians in the US, I read this study recently, um, frequently overestimate the conservatism. Of their constituents, so think that their constituents are more conservative on issues than they actually are. And so here's one where, again, I think that they might be overestimating looking at the polling numbers, where like the vast majority of Americans really think these conditions are awful. And, you know, they need to hear that. They need to hear from their constituents. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, The book is
1: Trading Barriers, Trading Barriers, and Remaking of Globalization.
0: Available wherever fine books are sold. Yes. Where can people find you? Twitter, the interwebs, et cetera.
1: At uh, Twitter, I'm at at migration nerd. Uh.
0: At migration nerd.
1: Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's always too many Maggie Peters and Margaret Peters in this world. You can't unless I was I was the early mover <laughs> in Gmail, so I got a good e- email there. But otherwise, you. You don't get a good a, yeah. good a good Twitter handle unless you're an early joiner.
0: I like migration nerd. Yep, that's strong.
1: And then uh, my website is maggiepeters.com.
0: And do you go around and I assume you go around and speak on all this stuff?
1: I do sometimes. Um,
0: uh, that's frequently on
1: campus in my classes.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: For. Either, you know, for an insane amount of money per hour. <laughs> and yet my students still fall asleep. As parents, we should yell at them about that. Be like, you're wasting my money. Um, but, yeah. Oh, thank
0: you so thank much. Thank you for having I, me. I really appreciate this. Um, and I, I just picture people who listen to this Robcast, like, you giving us such a wider way to think about all this. Right. And, and almost like there's always something upstream, that got dumped in the water, which is why we're here downstream dealing right. with this. Um, and that's what I really appreciate is this thing here has these other causes in other places and times and spaces. And if you trace it back, suddenly this thing does, isn't as confusing. Yeah. Um, it may be heartbreaking and devastating, but it's not as much of a giant hairball as it may have appeared. That's like really, really helpful. Great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. That was so good. Much. This has been fun. Oh, oh yes. I love to hear that. Grace and peace, everyone.